This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. A free press is ingrained in the First Amendment, but good journalism is in trouble these days. Newsrooms are cutting back on coverage, and hundreds of journalists have already been laid off this year. Some are at big name organizations like the LA Times and Wall Street Journal. Just last week, Vice News announced it would stop publishing online and lay off several hundred staff members. But many of the reporters we're losing cover news where you live. On Friday, our own organization added to that number. WAMU, the public radio station that produces 1A, announced that they're shutting down their local digital news site called DCist and laying off at least 15 staff members across the organization, including nine journalists. The local newsroom here is now down to four reporters. Some of you are concerned about this trend, too. Hi, I'm a D.C. resident and longtime listener to WAMU. I was really sad to hear that D.C. is shutting down and the newsroom is losing some of its most talented reporters. I grew up listening to local news and it scares me that it seems to be dying. I am deeply worried that without local news, people will be encouraged to get information from influencers instead of journalists who are trained to do this work. Local news is important to me. I'm still buying the daily newspaper that we still have in our town, although it gets a little weaker all the time. But uh, I guess I'm catching local politics and seeing who I wouldn't vote for. But if it disappeared, I don't know. There's no, I don't have a local pub I could go and get my daily read on things. It might be kind of tough. That wouldn't be a kind of a society I would like to be in. What do we lose when newsrooms, big and small, cut coverage? Why is this trend so concerning for our democracy, especially in an election year? We'll get into those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Measure your end-to-end online performance with powerful website and seller analytics. Get insights on top traffic sources, understand how your reach is growing, and more. Use code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Joining us from Tampa Bay, Florida, is Kelly McBride. She's the chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership at the Pointer Institute. She's also NPR's public editor, a watchdog for the organization's journalistic integrity and ethics. Kelly, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you for having me. Also with us today is Karen Runlett. She's the executive director of the Institute for Nonprofit News. They support and grow more than 425 nonprofit, nonpartisan news organizations across the country. Karen, welcome. Thank you. Hello. And a note on 1A's independence. We are produced by WAMU, and American University holds WAMU's license. However, as in all cases, on 1A, WAMU and American University executives did not review what was reported for this story before it was broadcast. We cover WAMU like we cover any other organization. Karen, why are we seeing these layoffs happening across the industry right now? Well, it's quite a bit. It has quite a bit to do with advertising and um, the decision around what's what's the priority for various institutions. But the other thing too is that we've seen a loss of newspapers over the last almost twenty years since two thousand five. We've lost twenty nine hundred newspapers, and we've lost forty three thousand newspaper reporters. 43,000. Kelly, all types of newsrooms are being affected, as, as Karen says. So there's newspapers, digital media, public media, both the national and local levels. How is the loss of local journalism felt differently from national cuts? Even though some of the causes are similar, the effect is very different. When you lose reporters on a national level, there's a lot of backfill, right? There's a lot of other organizations that can cover the issues that you are concerned with. But when you lose reporters on a local level, most likely that is not going to be replaced. Certainly not to the extent that um, the journalists that you had at at DCist. Um, And so what happens is you don't, as a news consumer, get information about the issues that are most immediate to you. Public safety, education, your health care system, how your city or community is actually working. And when you don't get that type of information, you start to feel, as a citizen, disenfranchised. You, you, and, and when people feel disenfranchised, they participate less in democracy. So it really is at the foundation of one of our problems in democracy is that, that individuals don't feel connected to their local communities. They don't feel like there's accountability. They don't feel like they can make a difference or they can participate. And therefore, they stop participating at all levels of democracy or they participate in ways that are, um, that are not necessarily in their own self-interest because they haven't had any sort of experience recently of, of being able to inform levels, inform issues on local levels. And so it really is, it is, it is a tremendous problem, not just for the communities, and there are thousands and thousands of them that have weaker reporting in journal, in, in, on the local level, which means they have less accountability. But it's a problem for our entire democracy. We got this message from a member of our tax club who writes, losing local news would be huge. If we lose local news, we lose connection to each other. And we learned even more during COVID how important connection to each other is. Karen, how does local news coverage foster connection in a way that is, that is different than what you may see from national news? The trust is higher for one. And I think right now we are an agitated nation. And what happens at the local level is at the baseline, most local news organizations, particularly INN members, are covering local government, schools, the arts, 
They're also covering climate and healthcare and economy and jobs and transportation. But at the basic level, it's always going to be schools and local government and arts. The arts connect us. Cultural events connect us. We see each other. We talk to each other about things that aren't necessarily hugely politicized. And then we have to, we, local journalists are studying the money and how the spending is going with your tax dollars. And they're making you aware of issues that your, law, your, your lawmakers or your local leaders are considering. And that's the kind of thing, when you're informed, you're more likely to vote locally. If you're only informed by national issues, you're going to have a national mindset when you get to the local polls. You're not going to be informed about the local issues. So you're going to be less connected. You're going to be informed nationally, but living locally and making decisions about local issues. That doesn't make any sense. And for, as for schools, where we're thinking about we're thinking about the next generation of children, whether or not you have children or not, this is the next this is the next group of people who are going to be, you know, functioning in our community. And so that's why it's so important. People who don't necessarily have children are concerned about schools and concerned about the education of society. Well, Kelly, it makes me wonder how the public's interaction with media has changed since media has become more and more splintered. You have more cable news channels. You have sites that um, dress themselves as if they're news sites, but they're not. And I can't count the number of times I've seen on social media someone say, why isn't the media reporting on this? And they will link a story from a local newsroom. And so what they really mean is, why isn't cable news reporting on this? So it seems like there's some some disconnection around the role local media may play um, or or its value to a community even. Your thoughts? Sure. Um, that's, that is absolutely 100% correct. Um, and it's because local news has become weak, right? We, we have lost those 43,000 reporters that we have lost means that the the group that's left behind has is spread way too thin. So they have so much to cover that they don't do any of it well. Mm-hmm. And they have to make really hard choices. Um, so they may choose to try and be all things to all people, or they may choose to cater specifically to certain communities. Um, either way, right, if they're trying to be all things to all people, then all people are a little disappointed in the local news product because it's just, it ends up being not very good. They cover the low-hanging fruit. They cover the issues that are most sensational, but they don't necessarily go deep on the issues that really make a difference in people's lives. If they cover specific, if they go deep but are targeting a specific audience, then all the other audiences feel disenfranchised. And so they feel like, well, that news isn't for me, and they're right. It isn't for them because specific decisions have been made to not create a news product for everybody. Um, so you, on the local level, you have impossible choices because the economy doesn't seem to be able to support a robust local newsroom. And we really haven't figured out the formula, right? Like we're trying everything. We're trying charitable newsrooms, you know, nonprofit newsrooms. We're trying for-profit newsrooms. We're trying venture capital, right? We're trying everything. It's really hard to make something fly and be sustainable on a local level. And as a result, most people in this country get 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 insufficient local news. They don't get a good product. And so they don't have a lot of trust in the product. And then when you look at the national news, you're right that it's been very splintered. And what's happening is um, 
it's it's very sensational, right? And it's meant to provoke and to irritate because that's what's grabby. That's what gets the audience because they're all competing with each other too. And so you get a distortion of issues. So when a local issue does bubble up to a national issue, it's because it's been deeply distorted. Let's head to the break with this email we got from Jeremy, who writes, One thing killing local newspapers is that print deadlines have been moved up so much that many stories, especially sports, are of events from two or more days ago. This is the case with the Cincinnati Inquirer. I subscribe to the print edition of it, like my monthly donation to public radio. It's my way to help support local news coverage. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. The news can be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. Hi, my name is Malcolm, and I'm calling from Los Angeles, California. When I think of LA's and our reporters and how they really bring stories alive, how they encourage a sense of community through their reporting, uh, all the local events that I've been to, I really can't imagine my LA experience without LA's. I know it's a tough time across the journalism industry, but our reporters are truly, truly an invaluable asset to this community. Malcolm, thanks for that message. And another of you texted, I think there is a link between the polarization of our country and the loss of local media. I try to catch the local news most days, and I will miss the connection to my community if it goes away. Karen, you you touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to hear more about the evidence for a link between political polarization and the loss of local media, as this person pointed out. The numbers and the research actually show that the local media and local reporters are more trusted. And it makes sense because you trust the people that you see regularly in your community that you interact with, who you might run into at the supermarket or who you might run into at a community event. You can say something to them about their coverage and you're more likely to have an experience with them, a personal experience of being interviewed or of contributing digitally to the conversation. 
Well, sometimes when newspapers close or, or digital outlets are shut down, their entire website disappears too. So this famously happened with Gawker after Hulk Hogan successfully sued it, though its archive was ultimately preserved by the Freedom of the Press Foundation. And that's currently what's happening with DCS. That's the decades-old community news site here in Washington. WAMU shut down access to the DCS website when it made the layoff announcement on Friday. In a statement released on Friday, the organization said, quote, with the renewed focus on delivering audio-first storytelling, W." WAMU made the decision to sunset the site and social channels. An archive of the website is being made available to staff to support their professional pursuits, end quote. So it's unclear how long staff will have access to that archive or if it will be made publicly open again so people in the community can access stories. We asked for clarity from WAMU's leadership, but they haven't answered those questions yet. Kelly, what is the value of a news archive, even if a newsroom isn't producing new content anymore? Oh my gosh, it's a record of what happened. And so if the public can't access that record, it's lost to them, all those stories. Um, And so, you know, the internet promised to equalize all of that. When I worked at a newspaper, we had this library, they called it the morgue, every newspaper had one. Mm -hmm. And you would go down there and, and every day the librarians would take multiple copies of the newspaper and file it and they would put it on microfilm and then you could go to the library and look up the microfilm. It was labor intensive, but it was so valuable. And most of those old pre-digital archives have been digitized so that people can get a hold of them. But if you can't if, if a digital archive disappears and is no longer available to the public, that is a true loss because you can't see how a story was first written. You can't see what happened on this particular day in this particular neighborhood or in this, this city. And so those historical archives are incredibly valuable. And and I really do hope that um, that that for every news site that shuts down, that there's that they find a way to preserve their archive and make it publicly accessible to everyone, because that's the promise of democracy, right? Is that we all have access to the same information? Karen, as you're supporting newsrooms across the country, how are you thinking about and planning for? that archival process. There's you know, technology changes and there's been work I've done that's, that's lost <laughs> to, to time and to technology. But how are you trying to take a more proactive approach to ensuring this kind of content remains publicly available? I would say that maybe the experts there are an organization like Internet Archive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just really want to second what Kelly said before. I'm thinking of an organization, the Amsterdam News, which is the oldest Um, black newspaper in the country. And for instance, they were... They were keeping tabs of obituaries because legacy organizations were not. And that was a record that's been around for a really long time. Um, So I think it is, is value. And every reporter goes back and looks at old clips, old, uh, old stories to get context. And so that their reporting is more nuanced. Well, let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's another message we got from a D.C. resident. This is Jason in Washington, D.C. And at a time when our nation is so polarized, it's all that more important to have independent local news sources. That's why it's so shocking that WAMU shut down DCS without warning. Did the exact same thing that a corporation did in 2018 and that saved it. And I just don't understand how 
listener-supported public radio can do that to such an independent and important vital news service to our city. I mean, let, let's talk a bit about nonprofit news organizations, including public radio. I mean, Kelly, the, the funding model for public radio is something we talk about a lot, especially during fundraising campaigns. Walk us through what that funding model looks like for public radio at the local level. Sure. Um, you public radio and a, a public news site on an internet um, reaches so many people in a given day. And then a certain percentage of those people give money as a result of their relationship with that, um, with that news. And um, when the audience gets smaller, you worry that the donations will decline. Um, and the public radio audience is getting smaller, right? The entire broadcast audience is getting smaller. But right now, in public radio, that's where most of the money comes from. And there is a nationwide effort to help public media transfer their fundraising efforts to the digital space, to the online space, because you can reach more people, you can do it year round. You don't; ha- it's not as disruptive to the dis- delivery of news. But that is a hard, hard lift, and nobody has done it really well yet. Um, and and the promise of you know because so DCist was acquired by WAMU, the Gothamist was acquired by WNYC, and LAist was acquired by KPCC in Los Angeles. And the promise of those three acquisitions was to accelerate the digital transformation so that those three organizations would would have a larger online footprint. Um, But translating that to fundraising takes a lot of skill, um, and it's really a path that hasn't quite been charted yet. And so um, it it apparently was not lucrative enough for um, WAMU to continue investing the resources in it, because still most of the money comes from the legacy audience, which is in broadcast. We got this email from Jim who says, nonprofit boards have a responsibility to adopt a strategy to do the work and raise the money needed. Too many do not do the work, but they also fail us during fundraising drives of failing to tell us explicitly how much is needed and the explicit cost. Our public radio station said it needed $1 million, did raise it, but never said it would close its local outlet after the money was raised. That is wrong. And we've gotten uh, several messages along that line. Ke- you know, Kelly, when you look at the public radio system as a whole, because the funding model is unique, how is the relationship to the public that supports it maybe different than what you'd see in corporate media as well? Well, it, yeah, it's, it's significantly different. Um, so in corporate media, the relationship to the audience um, is really so that they can convert that audience to customers for the advertisers, right? And so, so they value the audience that the advertisers value. In public media, the promise is that you value the entire audience, the entire market. Um, now, the reality is, is that you don't reach the entire market on broadcast, and you don't reach the entire market with your digital, but with the two of them combined, you would reach a much larger portion of the entire market. Um, but the relation, but but converting those people to donors 
is it, it's going to look different in the digital space, right? Because you don't have that immediate someone in your ear talking to you. And, and, and we just, in public media, haven't cracked that nut yet to figure out how to raise money in the digital space with that digital audience, because it really is two different audiences. As hedge funds have slashed newspapers across the country in the name of profit, many digital newsrooms are trying to fill some of that void. And they often have a nonprofit funding model. Karen, how do nonprofit news organizations like ProPublica or the 19th, for example, fund their work? It's a mix of different things. Uh, it can be a foundation grant. It can be members, as Kelly was mentioning before, members who say, I'm paying $25 a month or I'm paying $500 a year to support this organization for the good of everyone who's reading, listening, viewing um, in, the, in the name of an informed, um, in the name of an informed society and informed communities. And um, ProPublica and the 19th are larger organizations. There are many local organizations, including public uh, public media outlets that are members of the Institute for Nonprofit News, INN members like WJCT in Jacksonville or WFAE in Charlotte. But there are also smaller organizations like Benito Link. Benito Link, their audience is bringing them election flyers and saying, fact check this. Help me understand what this means. Mississippi Free Press is making sure that the information about uh polls is accurate. Is the address accurate? Are the hours accurate? Some basic things. They're doing important investigative work. They're doing important investigative journalism. But those are the kinds of things they're thinking about. So the members and the audience, we appreciate your donations. And I just want to call out to um, INN, the Institute for Nonprofit News. We run something called Newsmatch. It's a campaign where your dollars are matched if you donate to INN member organizations. And finally, I just want to remember about INN member organizations. They are vetted. Not everyone gets into INN. You have to be doing public service journalism. The membership committee is counting stories and reading stories. And you have to be transparent about who's donating to you. It can't be some well-to-do person um, just just funding blindly and setting up something that is partisan. It has to be based in facts, based in data. We got this email from Barbara who says, many people where I live do not understand that public radio is independent. They believe that it is mostly funded by the federal government. Fundraising efforts need to address this issue to find new donors. And Kelly, I'm sure this is something you're familiar with, but I wanted to circle back to the question of, of transparency in nonprofit news models where you're relying on the public to fund the work you do. Does that change the relationship in, in terms of the transparency that's owed those people? So not just about, not just editorial transparency, which we try to do on this show and on public radio stations across the country, but the decision-making process as well. It should. It should change that transparency. Because when you are asking people to voluntarily give you money, they expect more transparency about what you're going to do with that money and how you run the organization and where the other money is coming from. And for the most part, public media is pretty transparent in that they make the information available. 
But transparency is actually a habit, not necessarily just a state of being. And, and that means that you have to figure out, in the, in the same way that when you deliver the news, you have to figure out, like, what's the best time of day? What's the best way to deliver this? What's, um, how are you going to get the news to the audience? You have to figure out how to get the transparency to the audience, too. Um, you, you know, we do a lot of different things. We make our emails available. We um, answer questions. We do public events. Um, but, but you have to figure out, like, how to get to their questions and be responsive as an organization. And I'm sure that WAMU is, is in the hot seat right now, right? Because they've done something that, at least to a certain part of the audience, is very unpopular. And it doesn't feel good to have to be transparent when you are, are being unpopular. But I'm sure that they were, will figure out a way to do it because it is the foundation of the relationship between public media and the audience is that we are transparent, particularly compared to commercial media. Let's head to a quick break with this message we got from one of you. We would be devastated without local news. This is why we're sustaining members at our local public radio station. You are like family in the best possible form. Can public media help fill the gaps in local news coverage? One media scholar at Harvard says yes. We ask him how in just a moment. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Let's turn now to public radio. 1A is a national show aired on your local public radio station. Public radio has been a staple of many communities for more than 50 years. And that's part of the reason Harvard professor Thomas Patterson thinks it could be part of the solution to declining local news across the country. He joins us now from Boston to tell us about it. Professor Patterson, welcome to 1A. Well, thank you. My pleasure. You surveyed hundreds of public radio stations last year to see if they could help fill the local news void. Why do you think public radio could be an answer to this issue? Well, I think there are several reasons. Um, one, it's a trusted medium. Um, and as you know, trust in the media generally is down. And uh, that's an important uh, part of, uh, of any kind of communication. Uh, also, the, the, the stations, the public radio stations blanket 98% in terms of their broadcast signal, 98% of the country, including uh, the news deserts and other places where news is shrinking. So if you l- simply look at the footprint and the... Uh, and the reputation of, of local public radio. Uh, it's almost ideally suited, but then when you kind of take a closer look, uh, they have a problem, um, and it's funding. Uh, they have very small news staff, so w- what we found was that uh, 60% of local public radio stations have a news staff of 10 or fewer people, uh, and that's by a generous definition. Uh, we included student interns in that count, um, and uh, you, know, you, 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 can't, you can't do quality... Uh, local coverage on an ongoing basis, and that's what it takes to attract the audience. You can't do it on an ongoing basis with new staffs that small. So I think there's a real funding challenge around uh, local public radio, and if that can be figured out, it can it can really step up and fill part of this gap created by the decline of the local newspaper. Uh, Professor Patterson, your survey also found one of the biggest 
barriers for more local coverage was inadequate staffing at public radio stations, as you said. We heard from someone a little earlier this hour saying that they were planning to leave journalism because of their frustration with the way um, the system is operating right now, the way uh, leadership is handling, I, I guess, a variety of issues. They weren't they weren't specific, but when we think about the future of journalism, being in public radio or otherwise, what does it mean that mean to you that we have so many people who are exiting this field at, at this point? I, I can't even count the number of people I know who have left journalism in in recent years. What does that mean for the communities they used to serve? Well, I, I think it means a lot. So. Uh, sadly, with the cl- decline of the newspapers, we've we've had a natural experiment. We can go into those communities that have lost their newspaper uh, and see what happens to to local public life. And uh, on every indicator of civic health, uh, there's a problem. Uh, the uh, cohesion of the community declines. Uh, awareness of local affairs declines. Uh, participation in local election goes down. Uh, mis- misinformation goes up. Uh, polarization goes up. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, more than kind of the health of uh, of the news industry, and uh, uh, we're talking about the health of local democracy. And uh, I think we don't sometimes realize how important something is until we lose it. But uh, news has been one of the glues that that holds communities together. Uh, shared understandings of what the community is about, what other people in the community are doing. And when you take that away, uh, then the community in many ways stops acting like a community. We got this text from one of you. My local paper is getting smaller and smaller. My public radio station just plays NPR, which I think is unfortunate. Local music and culture is also suffering. Uh, Karen, the Institute for Nonprofit News works with some public radio stations. What have you run into regarding the staffing issue? What I can say there is that we also have a lot of digital-first organizations, and they are providing content, original reporting, to public media outlets. And what I would also say is that this is this is sort of emerging, as I said before, new. Um, some of it is very grassroots. There's a lot of collaboration going on in places like Detroit, for instance. There's an organization called Outlier Media. Mm-hmm. They are texting they are providing information through text to the the good the good folks of Detroit and they are turning around and they're collaborating with public media outlets they're collaborating with still the the legacy paper with commercial television so there's a lot of partnership and collaboration going on again you know there we have so many members that public media relies on for fact based um fact based reporting and um, the re- re- republication of all of that is 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 helpful. And and finally, I would say when public media is interacting with these new digital outlets, these new service organizations, these new journalism, it's it, it's a it's a richer way to to reach different audiences. Those who get their information by text, those who get it by broadcast, those who get it by email newsletter, it's more dynamic. I mean, Kelly, that that's an interesting um, point in that. You know, one of the arguments I've heard a lot in public radio in recent years is that we've got to meet people where they are. As the technology changes, we have to be responsive to how people want to interact with us, especially if we're interested in reaching new audiences, um, younger audiences, audiences from communities that we maybe haven't reached in the past. And yet earlier in our conversation, you said this idea of being everything to everyone 
is something that's proving not to be sustainable, at least within the public radio model as it currently exists. So I would love for you to pull on that thread a little bit and, and give us some insight into that tension and maybe even possible solutions. Is it about more cross-cooperation and collaboration with other organizations? Yes. I mean, I think that's the only way that we're actually going to get out of this conundrum on a local level, because the problem is scale, right? The the local newsrooms have small staffs and they have small budgets, meaning that the minute that you grow a reporter to be a decent investigative reporter or beat reporter, somebody from a larger organization is going to snatch that reporter away. And so you mentioned um, reporters leaving the business um, be, because they're in organizations that can't seem to grow them because they don't have the resources to do it. And so scale is really important, and we're going to have to figure out how to get local news organizations to collaborate from nonprofit to commercial, right, across business models and across audience types that they have, and, and at least to elevate the good work that other organizations in the community are doing. Because right now, when you do good work, you can't get it to a large enough audience to, to, to really create an impact. And then you can't raise the money, right? And so it's a, it's a self-perpetuating problem. Small staff means, means usually small audience. Small audience means not a lot of money coming in, and that means that you can't pay the big salaries to compete with a larger organization that, that's going to come in and take your best reporters. Karen? I just want to add to, um, first of all, everything Kelly said is so important. Collaboration is really important, but there's also funding and you know we thank every every listener for the donations that they make and um we thank the foundations that support this work as well it's really just a call that we need the community support on this the emails the emails and the text that you're sharing it's clear that there are a lot of people who understand the value of this work and particularly for organizations they need and appreciate your funding uh, professor patterson when you look across the system are you seeing innovative approaches to supporting local news that you that you think may be good models, because I want to make sure that we at least focus to some degree on possible solutions. Well, I think we're seeing a lot of um, very good work, uh, particularly in larger communities where the kind of collaboration that's been talked about is possible, where you have uh, enough viability to the news organizations. If they work together, uh, they can do better reporting. They can cover their community uh, in a more substantial way, and uh, and that creates demand. That 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 generates audience. Where the real problem exists is uh, in the more rural areas, the less sparsely populated areas. Uh, that's where the newspapers are struggling the most, and uh, that's where the smallest staffs for local public radio. Uh, are found. And when you have a really small staff, uh, uh, what we found is that you don't have enough people actually to collaborate uh, with other organizations or they're not interested because you don't, you don't have enough muscle behind your reporting. Uh, and you also struggle to do, um, to do digital. And uh, the audience is increasingly digital, young people especially. Uh, so you've got to move into that space. But if you have a very small staff, uh, you're, you're struggling simply to, to, to kind of do what you do on the air you really can't do much in digital. Uh, so I, I think there's a, a, a different kind of problem in different places. And I think 
uh, a recognition of those differences where you can find collaboration, where you can kind of work, uh, where news organizations can work together to strengthen what they do. Uh, but then we have a special problem in, uh, in these more rural, less sparsely populated areas. Uh, that's going to require a different solution. We got this email from Persis who says, although your guests have raised important consequences if we lose archives, I believe we ought not mince words and should alert to one of the biggest underlying threats. No archives means an increased ability to rewrite history. One if the big one of the biggest threats to democracy, I think. Persis, thanks for that message. You know, we're we're in our final minutes of the show and and I just want to quickly hear from each of you. You know, we've been talking about a lot of um troubling news. And we've been hearing from people in our audience about what local news means to them, um, what it means to them that it's disappearing in some cases. But I'm curious whether there are things you see right now in the industry, especially at the local level, that's giving you some hope. And Karen, I, I know for you working with so many outlets across the country, there's probably lots of bright, bright spots. Can you share one with us? Absolutely. I did mention Outlier Media before um, and the fact that they are texting their audience. They have hundreds of thousands of cell phone numbers that they are just texting answers so that misinformation is reduced or wiped out. So that's incredible. I want to also mention Conecta Arizona, which has a WhatsApp group. And that WhatsApp group, they're they're speaking in Spanish and having conversations in Spanish about local news every day. Searchlight uh, New Mexico and ProPublica reported, they did reporting, there were teenagers when residential treatment centers closed. These teenagers were not moved to foster care, but were also moved, they were moved to homeless shelters. And that reporting, you know, put a bright light on that and the governor took action on that. So those are just a couple of examples. Professor Patterson, what about for you? Well, I I think I'd like to uh, talk about what I'd like to see. Uh, I'd like to see Congress step up and provide more funding for uh, for public media, uh, per capita, we spend about three dollars uh, per year per person, and uh, Europe, it's uh, it's closer to fifty dollars per year. Uh, and you can have a more substantial system if uh, if we had more public funding. I also would like to see uh, uh, some of the um, new money. Uh, a lot of money has been made uh, on the new technology. Uh, much of it at the expense of, uh, of news organizations. And uh, interesting, many of those people have been very philanthropic, but they haven't been thinking very much about uh, public media with that philanthropy. And uh, there's a big need for a huge influx of cash. And uh, I think those are the two sources where it most likely would come from. Kelly, briefly? Yeah, I love what I'm seeing coming out of Mississippi today, um, a nonprofit newsroom in Mississippi that won a Pulitzer Prize last year. Um, And then commercial newsroom, um, Alabama.com, um, won a Pulitzer Prize for some investigative work that they did last year. Um, so there is there are bright spots, um, but Professor Patterson is right. It takes money, and it also takes something else. It takes leadership in these news organizations to convert the great journalism to a great business. That's NPR public editor Kelly McBride. She's also the chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership at the Pointer Institute. Also with us, Karen Runlett. She's the executive director of the Institute for Nonprofit News. And Thomas Patterson. He's a professor of government and the press at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thanks to you all.
Today's producer was 1A's special projects editor, Amanda Williams. And a note on 1A's independence, we are produced by WAMU and American University holds WAMU's license. However, as in all cases on this program, WAMU and American University executives did not review what was reported for this story before it was broadcast. We cover WAMU like we cover any other organization. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.